This is the NOAA Ocean Podcast. I'm Troy Kitch. In this episode, we're heading to the Florida Keys, the only place in the continental United States with shallow water coral reefs. These corals aren't the only thing that make the Keys special. We're joined by Brenda Altmeyer, Maritime Heritage Coordinator for Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, to tell us the story of the Florida Keys through maritime history. It's a story stretching back to the 1500s with trade routes, lighthouses, beacons, shipwrecks, and reefs. And this will give you just a taste of why this place is unlike anywhere else in the nation. Brenda, thank you for talking with us today. Can you tell us a bit about what you do at NOAA? I'm the Maritime Heritage Coordinator for Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, which involves field work associated with documenting, recording, and monitoring historical resources. But we also um, create and produce educational messages and products about the historical resources and preservation of those resources. It's the look, but don't touch why historical resources are important. They give us the information about our past and the things that shaped our history. How long have you been with the sanctuary? Uh, I started with the sanctuary in 1993, and I was actually in the education team at that time. Throughout the past 30 years, I've been fortunate to have worked in all aspects of this program, including to help set boundary buoys for our sanctuary preservation areas, repairing coral reefs, installing mooring buoys, updating management plans and programmatic agreements, as well as permitting and documenting shipwrecks. And we do trainings about heritage awareness. For those who know nothing about this part of Florida, can you describe it a bit? The Florida Keys are a chain of 1,700 islands that extend um, nearly 200 miles from the mainland Florida. The furthest island is in the Dry Tortugas. These islands are surrounded by teal to deep blue water that's relatively shallow with a mean water depth of about 20 feet. It goes all the way to the deeper reefs that reach about 60 feet before it starts to drop off. So we're almost on a plateau. There are two distinct sides to the islands. We have what we call the ocean side, which is the Atlantic, and then the Gulf of Mexico. In the upper keys, most people refer to it as the bay side since it's more of a an inlet bay, doesn't quite open up into the Gulf of Mexico proper. And what about the NOAA sanctuary? The sanctuary's jurisdiction surrounds uh, nearly the entire island chain. That's 3,800 miles from that mean high water at the shoreline to 300 feet on the Atlantic side where the water falls off to 300 feet. And then nine miles into the Gulf of Mexico. And we border three national parks, Biscayne National Park in our north, Everglades National Park to our west, and Dry Tortugas National Park at the very tip and uh, one state park that was established in 1960, which was John Pennycamp Corey State Park. So the sanctuary program down here with the, the larger Florida Keys was established in 1990 to protect the area from unregulated activities and uses and control damage to the marine environment. Our program required an area to be avoided that surrounded the entire Florida Keys. And what this did was it kept off the large vessels that were trying to use the Gulf Stream, which is like this underwater river that flows north. And they sometimes come in with the undulation of the the Gulf Stream closer to the reef than they should. And we've had some major ship groundings that have taken up parking lot sizes of coral reefs in just moments. So we also protect coral and historical resources. At, uh, At one time, back in the 50s and 60s, people were 
chiseling out coral, dynamiting out coral to sell in tourist shops because it was just a kind of almost a fad. You know, it was such a unique thing because it's the only state in the United States where we have shallow water coral reefs. So it was a very big draw for tourists. So that type of activity wasn't regulated. And so the sanctuary helped to put a stop to some of those unregulated activities when we came along. Of course, that's why John Pennycamp was established also to protect that coral reef out to three nautical miles where the state jurisdiction ends. You said one of the things the sanctuary does is to keep large vessels away from the reefs of the Keys, which follow the Gulf Stream around the tip of Florida. Let's get more into the history of this area as a, as a route for mariners. Down here in the Florida Keys, we have a major marine highway, and it's been a highway for a very long time, beginning in 1513 when Ponce de Leon, a Spanish explorer, first laid eyes on the Keys. The increasing traffic continued over the centuries to follow. They've come up along you know, the island set um, using the Gulf Stream, which is an underground current that flows north. So when these voyages of these Spanish explorers came from Central and South America, they came up by Cuba and then followed this, what they called the New Bahama Channel, which is the Straits of Florida that would travel up along the Keys. And it was noted very early on that, that this underwater river helped to propel those vessels quicker in their northward movement. Of course, it's not something you want to fight coming south because then it will push you back. But they recognized that this was a very important waterway to help them save time and effort when they're moving northward. The challenges down here include weather conditions. We've had a lot of ship groundings in this area because there was lacking navigation aids. The waters are very tricky. There's shallow coral reefs. There's shoaling sand, and it's not a water that you can guess where the deep spots are. I know in some areas of the world, the the darker spots mean that it's deep water, but down here, that can indicate a shallow coral reef right up ahead of your vessel. So it's very tricky. The large ships that sailed back then were heavy. They were large. They required sail, a lot of canvas, and they depended on the wind. So depending on what direction the wind was blowing, they may or may not get the movement they needed, or they may not be able to tack in the right direction to keep themselves from going afoul on a reef. So it was a very tricky time. And to man all those sails were uh, needed a lot of people on those vessels as well. And sometimes sickness went through the whole boat because you're living in and amongst each other. So there was a lot of complications. The instrumentation wasn't great you know it's not like nowadays where there's you know garmin gps they didn't have charts they lacked instrumentation and everything so it was a considerable uh, difficult time for early mariners with a lot of shipwrecks hundreds yeah we had we have hundreds of shipwrecks throughout the florida keys throughout many different periods of time from that early exploration in the 1600s. You know, there was two large vessel groundings that occurred as a result of hurricanes back in the 1600s with the Atocha Margarita and that fleet. And then the 1733 fleet that were heading back to Spain, they left Havana Harbor July 13, 1733 and ended up in a hurricane and 13 vessels were stoned along the Florida Keys reef line. 
During the American period in the 18th and 19th century, when the United States was rapidly growing and relying on shipping for transportation of people and goods, the route along the Keys was that major highway that was a conduit for all these vessels coming from ports of the interior, goods that were being shipped from further north and being sent through Louisiana out to the eastern seaboard. They all had to travel along this dangerous shipping route on the Florida Keys. So something had to change to make the shipping journey safer. The safe navigation was a priority of the Lighthouse Act that was passed in 1789. And this established the aids to navigation to regulate and encourage trade and commerce in the world. So that was H.R. 12, which was signed on August 7, 1789 by President George Washington. The Coast Survey was established in 1807 and was directed to create accurate charts of all United States coast and waters. And it was that was one of our country's priorities that we had to get this right, because that's the main way things got transported. As a side note to our listeners, the Survey of the Coast was the official name of the office established by President Thomas Jefferson back in 1807. And little known fact here, this was the first scientific agency of the U.S. government. And it was the predecessor of today's Coast Survey Office, which is part of NOAA's National Ocean Service. So NOAA traces its roots all the way back to 1807. Brenda, can you talk a bit about the work Coast Survey teams did in the Keys back in the day? So the Coast Survey spent nearly 40 years in the Keys assisting the Lighthouse Service to map and mark the reefs. And that was a long time. It was very tedious work. There's a lot of shallow areas, a lot of reefs that come up out of nowhere. The justification reached ahead in 1848. They used the records that were associated with ships that were lost between 1844 and 1848. There was 174 vessels that wrecked on the reef during that time period, and the losses were in the millions. So you had the merchants screaming, you had the insurance companies screaming, you have the government trying to figure this out. We need to do something that makes this safer because these goods need to make it to the, their end destination, and commerce needs to continue. So what did they do? The first lighthouses were established in 1825 at what we call like the head of the Keys, which is Cape Florida. It's the very tip of mainland Florida on that uh, eastern side. And then in the Dry Tortugas, which kind of is the head pins, I guess, of the, the challenging area. So in 1853, there was a series of unlit beacons that were erected because we were waiting for money appropriations to build offshore lighthouses. They were still trying to figure out how to do this. What were these beacons like? These unlit beacons were just a pile pole that were installed into the, the seafloor. And they sent down Lieutenant James B. Totten with the United States Army, who was an assistant now to the Coast Survey, to construct these pile poles. They were innovative at the time because they were so cost-effective and, and fairly easy to install, and they saved a lot of lives. So it was pretty important. They were 30 to 40 feet tall, and at the time they were topped with a like a single barrel. It was painted black, had some red and white on there as well. In the vein of this pole was a letter, and it went from A to P, and there was 15 of these in all. From the photos I've seen of the Florida Keys Sanctuary website, these original beacons have decayed and collapsed over time, but they're still there. For our listeners, check the show notes for this episode for links to the Sanctuary website, where you can see 3D images of the remains of the Totten beacons. 
and you can actually move them around to view from different angles. It's a view that only divers can see that you can see right from your living room. It's pretty cool. Well, Brenda was part of the team that made this possible. We did a project in 2014 to document these unlit beacons. We thought that this was an important part of our history that needed to be marked. You know, the lighthouse is a prominent, they're there, and some of these beacons exist right next to the lighthouse. So uh, we got a team together, we took a week, and the grant provided us the funding to put this all together. So we were able to document five of the 15, which is a smaller amount of them, but some of them we couldn't find. But what we found was the remains of uh, you know, this four foot by four foot frame, if you will, with the letter on the inside. And, you know, it just is a mark in our history how our area was a pivotal point, you know, for this marine traffic to make its way past here without getting caught up in the reefs and the ingenuity of the time, the many people that were part of trying to figure out what the best thing to do to make them safer. So um, these, these piles, these beacons are uh, important in our history. It's like a museum in the ocean. A lot of our economy is based on tourism and the tourism is heavily driven by being in the water, going in the water, diving, snorkeling, fishing, of course, as well. But, you know, to visitors who come down and can see something like that underwater, it's a feeling like nothing else. There's plenty of, of historic artifacts that have been brought up in the 50s and 60s by treasure hunters that are left along the highway, and I don't see anybody stopping at them. I don't see anybody stopping to look and really appreciate that that was from a tall ship that sailed maybe in the 17th century, people that were transported over here that now started our population. There's, there's no love for those artifacts. But when you go underwater, you get a different feeling about it. You see them in situ, you, you can appreciate the event, what happened, why they're here a lot more than you can if they're brought back and shoved in a museum or put up along the roadside. And along with the remnants of the Totten Beacons, what other aids to navigation mark the shallow reefs and the sanctuary? We have five offshore lighthouses that are in our Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. In 2012, the Coast Guard deassessed these lighthouses from their property, and they were no longer needed because they installed newer poles, almost like the historical poles that were installed in the 1850s. Uh, next to the lighthouse and took the place of the lighthouse. And since they could no longer maintain them, um, very expensive to maintain, as you can imagine, being as old as they are and with the personnel that had to go in and, and you know change lights and make sure that they had batteries to, to operate these lights. So it became just too cost prohibitive to keep them up. So the new lights have a brighter light and, and they're next to or close to the original lighthouse structures. In some of these locations, we have a series of three. We have the 1850 series beacons from Totten. We have the lighthouses that were installed and then we have the new beacons. Of these five lighthouses, the new beacon is what is used today. So the original beacons are now part of history, but there are some new smaller beacons with brighter lights being installed or that were installed by the U.S. Coast Guard. And so the lighthouses are no longer in use then. The lighthouses are no longer lit. They've been deactivated and sold to private hands. 
One of them was deeded to a local group called the Friends of the Pool. And so their desire is to fix this one lighthouse up so that it's it's kind of the way it was or way it would have looked had it been properly conserved and allow visitation to the, the internal workings of the lighthouse and, and really celebrate history that way. Brenda, you've lived in the Keys for more than 30 years. You experienced the decommissioning of the lighthouses as four of the five of them in the Keys were sold off to private owners. And the fifth, Alligator Reef Lighthouse, is now being preserved by the local community group we mentioned, Friends of the Pool. And you're witnessing the installation of new, much smaller modern beacons. I'm wondering if you could tell us what it was like to witness all of this change. Navigation has changed over the many years. The most people use a Garmin and they might not even do dead reckoning. They don't use paper charts anymore. So because of navigation changing, the Coast Guard felt that most people no longer need to have these tall beacons, you know, 100 and some feet tall to identify where they're going because everybody's using navigation instruments. So back in 2012, when the Coast Guard declared that they were deassessing this property because they no longer needed it, and it was becoming too costly for them to maintain these lighthouses, then the General Services Administration took over, took many years to um, all the way up until 2021-22 to find appropriate new owners for them. So here's where we're at. I think the Friends of the Pool got their deed in 2021 or 22. And uh, yeah, it was um, quite an eerie sound and a heart hurtful sound when, you know, I I remember it distinctly. I was on um, the boat, the RV Agassiz, one of our boats going out to do work in the field. And the Coast Guard does a what they call a pom-pom over the radio to alert mariners that something might be an obstruction, it might be a change in navigation, it might be a marker down. And I heard the pom-pom come over about Alligator Reef Lighthouse is permanently um, extinguished. Crazy. I mean, it was crazy to hear that because, you know, all the years that I've been here and to know that they were here for hundreds of years before me, and to think that there's this delineation, this mark, you know, that I'm seeing here in history where it's like, that's it. They're no longer lit. From here forward, you know, we're moving into this new era. Thank you for joining us today. That was Brenda Altmeyer, Maritime Heritage Coordinator for Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. A reminder to check our show notes for links to the Florida Key Sanctuary website. There are more amazing stories, 3D imagery, and just so much to explore about this unique place. Thanks for listening to the No Ocean Podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode.